Hello and welcome to the Genesis podcast, the official podcast for East London's best and brightest indie cinema, Genesis. With lockdown 3.0 still going strong, but the end in sight, the opening of cinemas on the horizon and virtual award season in full swing, we thought we would come together to throw in our two cents on the Film Awards 2021. I'm Nikki Alexandru and joining me this week is just one of my illustrious co-hosts, a man who watches all the award shows at least twice, staying up till the wee hours to catch up on the gossip and has been banned from at least four red carpets. It's Matt Williams. It's me. Um, I would watch all the awards more than once. Uh, more than that. I watch all the clips. I love it. I love it. You I watch do. the Oscars. You told me you watch the Oscars through at least twice. Like you stay up late to watch it. And then the next day after you've slept, you watch it again. I do. Just it's in true. case you missed any, you know, side eyes, quips. I love stress. it. When people say, oh, I hate it because it's all the technical awards are really boring and the songs and all of that. I love all of that because it's a chance to see, you know, A-listers in their finery and yeah, just, I don't know, the film buff in me, the nerd, it just comes out and I, I get something out of it. I do. So I do. I do tend to watch it twice in the space of 48 hours, which is maybe extreme <laughs> given that it's like four hours long, but still. It's not extreme. I think it's good, good to have a niche and you are our awards guru. Zah. Desire to the awards. Coming up this week on the podcast, we are going to review The Mauritanian, Minari and Promising Young Woman. We're also going to talk about the BAFTA and Oscar nominations and recent news that Disney are releasing Black Widow and Cruella on their streaming platforms at the same time as they drop in cinemas. So dual release simultaneous release uh, both online and in cinemas don't forget to give us a follow at genesis podcast and at genesis cinema on twitter and instagram you can also email us podcast at genesis-cinema.co.uk if you have any comments feedback love notes apparently uh etc love notes for matt probably yes please Most matt has a lot of secret admirers oh god do i <laughs> <laughs> so secret i can't even fucking see them hear them or meet them that's how secret they are. They're very good at being secretive. <laughs> All right, should we get on to some news? Yeah, let's do it. The oddest award season ever is sticking to its unpredictable path with the Academy Awards sharing the love among a number of films with no clear frontrunner so far. David Fincher's Mank leads with 10 nominations with Shaka King's historical thriller Judas and the Black Messiah, Florin Zeller's uh, The Father, Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7, Minari, Chloe Zhao's road trip drama Nomadland and Darius Marder's hearing impaired culture study Sound of Metal scoring six nominations each. Streaming platforms nabbed 35 nominations with two two female filmmakers competing for the Best Director Award for the first time ever. How um, ridiculous is it that it's 2021 and it's the first time that two women have been nominated in Best Director? I mean, it's a long freaking time coming and only one woman has ever won it in its whole history and I'm hoping that this year will be the second. I think it definitely will be the second this year. I think Chloe Zhao has got a very good chance of winning this. And it's been very limited. You know, Catherine Bigelow, Barbara Streisand, there were more sort of indie auteur directors. I mean, I yeah, was... I was going to say they're probably more in the kind of smaller budget indie pool rather than the, the stuff that tends to get Oscar nominations, which... I I think if, say, a film like Winter's Bone, 
was mm. released now, then Deborah Granick would have been nominated for Best Director, as she should have been back then. Mm. But it's bizarre. Like it was the it was very much a boys' club, and they were keeping keeping sort of auteur female filmmakers out of the out of the out of the running, basically. And that has changed. There's been a shift, which is great. But more so, it's not tokenism because both these films, Nomadland, um, although I haven't seen it, everybody is raving about it. I think Chloe Zhao has is is really kind of emerging as this incredibly impressive filmmaker that everybody is talking about. I mean, to sort of come into award season with only, what is it, a third film, Nomadland? I think it's only her second. Or her second film. You know, to, to, to impress people on this kind of level, both critically and commercially, and also then have a Marvel film in the offing, The Eternals, which, mm-hmm. by the way, early word is she completely revolutionises the Marvel Universe in a glorious, extraordinary way. The early buzz is is deafening, really. So, sorry, you were right. It's her third film. She it's her third film. She she did a film in 2015 called Songs My Brothers Taught Me. The other nominee in that category is British director Emerald Fennell, who she's nominated for a debut film, Promising Young Woman, which we're going to be reviewing later on in the show. And she, of course, wrote that as well. Um, I was so happy to see her in this list. Just really is, it's really one of the most remarkable films I've seen in so long. Like so, so original with so much to say, but also just filmed in a way that is really, on the surface, looks very kind of pop culture-esque and bubblegum. But actually underneath that surface is this, this, darkness and this um, pain and this you know anguish and it's just so beautifully done tonally the skill in which she balances everything is is uh, is astonishing so i'm really excited to see her in there trent reznor and atticus ross both uh, picked up nominations for two films so they've got mm. two nominations in uh, best score for mank and soul while ma rainey's black bottom and the united states versus billy holiday received um nods in other categories so excited to see andrew day nominated for best actress united states versus billy holiday isn't a great film because lee daniels the director he tries out all sorts of different methods of filmmaking throughout the film. <laughs> it has all sorts of varying styles, which is really disconcerting. But the one thing you can say about it, Andrew, Andrew Day embodies Billie Holiday. It's such a ferocious, full-throated performance. I mean, it, it blew me away, actually. And I, my two favourite female performances this year are her and Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. Mm. Riz Ahmed, who stars as punk metal drummer mm. um, who loses his hearing in Sound of Metal, has also been nominated. Riz Ahmed has been around for a while. He's so great. I was so glad to see Riz Ahmed um, nominated for this. I can't wait to see Sound of Metal because it's not come out yet here, which is very frustrating because it's obviously picking up a lot of awards attention and I just really want to see it. And I, but I absolutely loved Mogul Mowgli this year. So I was just hoping he would get recognition somewhere and we'll come on to the BAFTAs because I think Mogul Mowgli has got a bit more recognition in, in those awards. Yeah. Well, also it's great that Paul Racy, his um, co-star was nominated mm. for best supporting actor because in the lead up, there was a lot of talk because normally sometimes with the Oscars in supporting categories, there's always seems to be room made for a kind of veteran or a character actor mm. who's had a really big moment. And, uh, He's been working in film for, I think, like 30 years and doing local theatre. And uh, Darius Marada gave him the opportunity with this part. And everybody, all the reviews have said that the performance is really remarkable. So it's great to see him recognised as well. Well, in a similar vein to Glenn Close getting nominated for Hillbilly Elegy in supporting role. I mean, I, I haven't seen that film either. I know you've seen it, but it does seem to be a bit more like we should have giving you an Oscar by now. So we're going to keep nominating you. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't hate Hillbilly Elegy. It was a bit, 
of a soap opera and a bit glossy, but the performances you couldn't fault. Amy Adams was, was great, but Glenn Close was really great. Like, I mean, she wasn't afraid of being really unlikable. Very excited to see uh, Maria Bakalova nominated for uh, Borat 2 because mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said to you guys when I first saw that film, it was her work, her performance in that, that was so outstanding because not only does she hold her own against Sasha Baron Cohen as a as a comedian, but it's the arc of that character and what it does to the idea and the mythology of Borat. Because obviously Sasha Baron Cohen is playing up the tropes of like misogyny and and how women are treated in certain countries. And with the introduction of this character as his daughter, it becomes a sneaky feminist movie that you don't expect and there are so many scenes in it there's a, a scene where she confronts a group of republican women um, there's a debutante ball and then of course the infamous rudy giuliani scene and what she does she doesn't miss a beat and yeah. she makes you really care about this character and while also delivering laughs i mean it's just it's a great performance i wouldn't be surprised to see if uh, see her pick it up to be honest other brit nominees include sasha baron cohen as we mentioned but not for borat for the trial of the chicago seven in best supporting actor carrie mulligan as we mentioned for promising young woman olivia coleman daniel kaluuya so daniel kaluuya has been nominated for best supporting actor as has mm. lakeith stanfield both for judas and the black messiah quite strange because both performances are lead mm. but it's they seem to they seem to have moved them into supporting yeah, it's an odd one because I heard that Lakeith was um, campaigning for lead originally. So I don't know whether it's they wanted to reward them for their work, but perhaps they had run out of room in lead and so made more sense to put them both in supporting. Well, there is a is there this- is a strategy. There's always a strategy mm-hmm. because even if the actor feels that their performance is a lead performance and want to be put in that category, it can sometimes be down to the production company, to the agents, to all the other people that are around it to say, well, look, if you go up for lead, you're definitely not going to get a nomination because it's an overcrowded category. But if you put yourself in supporting, you're far more likely. It does feel odd that they are both there. I mean, I would say it makes more sense that Daniel Kaluuya is there because even though the story is about Fred Hampton, it's told from Lakeith Stanfield's Mm. character's perspective. So it makes sense that that Kaluuya is in that category. But I don't know, it it, it does feel a bit odd. It does feel a bit odd. But if one of them wins, which I think Daniel Kaluuya will, um, then great because the film gets more viewers and it's such a powerful and 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 important story for people to see so um either way it's it's good the the, the film was recognized other brit nominees include sir anthony hopkins vanessa kirby and gary oldman i'm, I'm interested the pieces of a woman only got that one nomination for vanessa kirby because i feel like that the first 15 minutes that birth scene nabbed her that nomination i do really like her but i really didn't like that film The 93rd Annual Academy Awards are going to be airing on the 25th of April. Apparently, they're going to do it from Union Station in LA. Is it Union Station? I also heard that they are trying to... like say that people have to attend in person. That's what they want all the nominees to, yeah. Seems a bit odd considering the current climate of things in the US. So what they've said is that they want all the nominees to attend with their guests and the other nominees and presenters, but there won't be a big audience. And there, I guess there won't be, the red carpet might be socially distanced, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they have done a few of those like socially distanced awards in other countries in the summer, didn't they? Like I remember seeing a, I just remember seeing an image of like 
a pretty empty auditorium with a lot of actors in with masks on, including Kate Blanchett. I can't remember what oh, the, the award. Venice. Well, she was the, the she was the head of the jury at Venice. Yeah, yeah. so they were doing them there with a, a socially distanced audience. So I guess it's possible if you've just got the nominees and the presenters. I think they've learned their lesson from the Golden Globes because the Golden Globes broadcast was one endless Zoom meeting where nobody really knew what they were doing there was no flow to it and uh even despite the best efforts of amy polar and tina fey it just fell flat you know there's just no atmosphere so yeah no I'm, I'm excited for it so so far it doesn't have a host which of course will be the third year in a row where it's gone hostless but um it's notable because it does have the most diverse slate of nominated talent so in a positive move away from the hashtag oscars so white which uh, i think was coined about five years ago nine of the 20 acting nominations are people of color the BAFTAs, however, have gone all out in terms of diversity. Yeah, so the BAFTAs, we talked about this before. The BAFTAs have felt like a very scattergun approach with no real like forerunner and then a lot of films getting nominated in one category and nothing else, which kind of feels a bit odd, especially if some if that film is, you know, one of the best film, like outstanding British film or best film, but it's not in any other categories it's like what's making it a best film then if it's not the actors or the writing or the direction or the cinematography it's it's a bit i don't know it's it's an odd one i was pleased to see as a few sort of left field or maybe not left field but um perhaps surprise nominations including um alfrey woodard for clemency which i think is kind of like a maybe a, a nod to the fact that she didn't she was I'm eligible for nomination last year for the Oscars, but didn't get it. And so it's quite nice that she's been honoured in the BAFTAs at least. Um, yeah, she is fantastic. It's a small fantastic. film, a small but she's so good. Like she's so good in that film. And I think it, yeah, she is. I think it came out. I feel like I saw it at the cinema, but it was very close to like, it was in between the pandemic. So it was, it I feel was, like a lot was, of people ended up seeing it because it was one of the only films available to see. That's it. right. It it came out when lockdown restrictions were lifted the first time. Mm. So there was like a two week window where you could go to the cinema. And I think that's when they dropped Clemency, even though it had come out the year before at Sundance. Mm. So it was almost a year and a half later that it was getting released over here. Um, but Alfred Wood, I mean, she's just such a accomplished veteran at this point. And that film... I think a lot of people felt that she was cheated of an Oscar nomination. So it is good that it's it stayed with the BAFTA voters and that they've recognised her. Yeah. So I think last year there was a, the BAFTA's So White hashtag. Um, there was a lot of criticism over the shortlist. The majority of the 24 nominees are from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, including Riz Ahmed, Wunmi Masaku and Daniel Kaluuya, and also Bookie Bakray for Rocks, which I think mm. is a an incredible achievement considering it's you know her first film i mean it well well deserved because i fucking loved rocks <laughs> such an amazing film i mean like incredible how they put that film together you know years and years of of not years and years but quite a few like months of crafting the script in in such a collaborative way and the the performances are brilliant like not just from bookie bakray but from the 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 whole cast uh the young boy that plays her brother i feel like he's got a nomination as well am i just making that up quite possibly best supporting actor maybe best supporting actor i'm pretty sure he did no i've made that up i've made it up um but he should have but he should have done yeah. <laughs> he should have done but like you know there's a lot of really young oh no sorry so 
there's a best supporting actress nomination for her co-star uh kosa ali who plays her best friend who also is brilliant and kind of almost steals the show is the like kind of they're all funny actually i don't really want to give her like the kind of comic relief moniker because they're they're all funny they're all lovable they're all likable it's it is quite a a serious topic but they they manage to have so much positive energy and you really root for them throughout the whole film so i'm really glad to see actually like that rocks has got a lot of support from the baftas which i think is great i'm a little bit annoyed that they haven't nominated it for best film they put it obviously in outstanding british film but it hasn't then got the best film nomination as well considering it has got so many other nominations like you know debut acting and it just feels a bit off that it didn't get best film the best film list is a lot shorter as well than the outstanding british film list which i mean i don't really understand how these lists how they decide on like how long each list is going to be it's yeah it's an interesting list but i think i can't remember if it's the baftas or the oscars where the oscars is each nominated category is by you know the actors is actor and then directors vote for director so maybe that's why there's kind of this sort of split in the categories a little bit so we should say that the bafta awards are delayed from february due to april to april obviously because of the covid pandemic um, there's been a lot of female directors nominated in the category, including Shannon Murphy for Baby Teeth and Jasmila Zabanik for Quivada Aida. And I think also Sarah Gavron for Rocks is nominated as well, which is fantastic because I think the direction of that film is brilliant and just bringing all these young actors together who've never acted on screen before. But wrangling non-professionals is a big job. Exactly. I mean, that's if you can if you can sort of wield that and turn it into something that's as engaging as Rox is, I mean, that's an astounding achievement. Mm. And obviously, Chloe Zhao picks up a nomination as well for Nomadland. So it's br- like, I think it, they've done really well to diversify their nominations this year. It does feel quite scattershot, but... I don't know. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing at all. I mean, I was a little bit stunned when I saw mm. the nominations. I think because in, I was really gunning for Promising Young Woman this year because it is my favourite film, one of my favourite mm. films. And so I was a little disappointed that Carrie Mulligan wasn't nominated for Best Actress. But then when you look at that list, you know, it's really exciting and diverse and and really radical, you know, for the BAFTAs. So that has to be celebrated. And it kind of feels like the BAFTAs have focused on like you know they are the british film awards so it's they've kind of i hope i think they've turned their sights a little bit more towards british film i mean not completely but it's quite nice that it's not just a carbon copy almost of the oscars which it has been a few times like you know in the past well all will be revealed at the bafta ceremony which will be broadcast from royal albert hall on sunday the 11th of april which isn't too far away depending on when you're listening to this podcast so Black Widow and Cruella, two tentpole movies for Disney, are going to be debuting on Disney Plus and in theatres on the same day. So <gasps> movie, I know, movie going is slowly beginning to sort of rebound in the US, but it looks like the studios have embraced the idea of streaming platforms as a way to reach a wider audience. So Disney have massively overhauled its upcoming slate and they've amended release plans for Black Widow, Cruella, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, Pixar's Luca and several others. But notably Black Widow and Cruella will now premiere on Disney Plus at the same time they open in theatres. Cruella is arriving on the 28th of May, while Black Widow has been pushed back two 
two months and is going to be debuting on the 9th of July instead of 7th of May. Both titles are going to be offered on pre- uh, Premier Access, the same as Mulan was, and um, it comes with a not too cheap price tag of $30, which will be like 20, 20 quid here. But to be fair, you know, as you said before, you pointed this mm. out before, Nikki, that if there's like a few of you at home, what's the deal? Like it's, and you get to see the movie and it's 20 quid, it's fine. Like it's, it's, and a lot of people, I mean, don't get me wrong, like I don't want cinema to be diminished and to disappear altogether. But I also personally want to be able to see films when I want to see them. Mm. And if this is a way of being provided that content straight away, I'm all for, I'm happy to, I'll pay the 20 quid. I'm happy to do that. I'm all for it. I think the simultaneous release is the future of cinematic release like i think there will always be people who want to see it in the cinema and that won't go away and i think there will be people who either prefer to or have to watch at home for whatever reason you know you might not live that close to a cinema if you don't live in a big if you live don't live in a populated area like we've discussed before like you just brought up now like if you've got a big family taking yourself and three kids or yourself and two kids even is a lot of money i've taken my three cousins to the cinema and it is pricey like even if you get a family ticket it still can be quite pricey whereas if you can pay 15.99 some of them have been or you know up to 20 pounds and once the pandemic's over you can get a bunch of their friends around and have like a sleepover and all watch this this film and you pay 20 quid and that's you know 10 or more kids entertained potentially yeah i do worry though that because kids are so used to watching things on their phones or their iPads or, mm. you know, at home now, especially during a pandemic, that there's going to be less and less interest for cinema. I mean, there's nothing for our generation, my generation, your generation, there's nothing like the experience of watching a movie on the big screen and, and just being immersed in that in that atmosphere. And I mean, for me, it's just, it's oh, heartbreaking it's just to think that that is going to diminish and but, it yeah. might eventually completely because you know so much they're going to be simultaneously releasing but that doesn't mean that's going to go on forever you know if there's more of an audience if more people are staying at home to watch something because it also tackles the piracy well not massively but it, it will tackle some of the piracy issues that mm. people will be like well i only download something on a torrent or i down or i stream it illegally because i have to wait six months to see it mm. if you if you move that out of the equation then yeah that's got to be appealing to studios, right? That's the other thing I was going to say, actually, basically exactly on that point, is that it means also if you go to the cinema and see something and enjoy it, you don't necessarily have to pay to go to the cinema again to see it again quickly, if you see what I mean. You You know, so you might treat the family to go to the cinema, but when people who have been around kids know, they want to watch the same film over and over and over again. And this way, they can. And for less, hopefully, a bit less money. Well, Disney have a lot to live up to because... Well, they're saying that Genesis have very cheap prices, sometimes £5 a ticket, so... Yeah, exactly. Well, also, Genesis, it's like they often have very niche screenings, which we go to a lot, and it's always super fun. Especially if there's a curator there and there's a and a it's always great. So reviews, we are going to be looking at uh, The Mauritanian, Promising Young Woman and Minari. Uh, First up, we're going to talk about uh, The Mauritanian, which will will be released on streaming platforms on the 1st of April uh, on Amazon Prime, actually. So you can watch it there. It's uh, directed by Kevin MacDonald, who has done Touching the Void, Last King of Scotland, uh, the Whitney Houston documentary Whitney. And it is based on a true story. 
and it stars Jodie Foster as Nancy Hollander, Taha Rahim as Muhammadu Salahi, and Shailene Woody as Terry Duncan. Also, Benedict Cumberbatch is miscast and in it, but we'll come on to that later. Um, so the story is about Muhammadu, who is captured by the US government very shortly after the events of 9-11 and is taken uh, eventually to Guantanamo Bay. And he's there without charge, without trial. It's just about the absolute horrendous treatment that he faces. And when Nancy Hollander finds out about his case, they just, she decides that you know she's on a mission to give everybody a fair trial a fair defense you know despite what he's been accused of which is organizing the whole of 9-11 she thinks that he deserves to be listened to and I think at first she thinks that he's guilty and she's kind of coming in on that angle but on the angle that you know he still deserves a fair trial and so that's kind of how the story goes on and it's it's based on on truth and it kind of comes out of the fact that uh, Muhammadu uh, Sahahi in real life released a book which was almost entirely redacted but still became like a New York Times bestseller about his experiences in Guantanamo and kind of shed a lot of light on the the controversial treatment of people who are being detained there often without any kind of charge he's still never been charged for anything spoiler I mean I don't know if that's a spoiler I think a lot of people will know some of the real story but he's never ch- been charged for anything and apparently he still can't leave he can't travel anywhere. He can't get a uh, a visa to travel anywhere. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a kind of like political thriller. I think Jodie Foster's brilliant in it. Uh, I I found Gabenic Cumberbatch, his, I found his accent completely distracting. I just thought he was not good in it. I don't know, there was something about him that just didn't, sit right for me he just felt like really weirdly placed in this film and like no i i agree with you I, th- I do think he was miscast in the part because the character is meant to be this all-american you know u.s veteran who's he's introduced to the story as somebody who is kind of manipulated into prosecuting muhammadu be and based on the fact that a good friend and someone he grew up with um died on one of the planes that crashed into the towers on 9-11 so there's this whole kind of emotional thing and i and i feel like cumberbatch doesn't quite convince as that character as that all-american um driven by the need for revenge and uh and justice um what i would say though is that I, i i thought this was compulsive and i really enjoyed it in the sense that it is a kind of riveting political thriller Jodie Foster hasn't had a or hasn't been in a part like this for a long time so it was great to see her front and center because you know she's vulnerable and steely and I liked her dynamic with Shailene Woodley even though that character was quite unwritten uh, underwritten I did feel like there was a nice there was nice moments in there where you can see the character of Nancy who's a humanitarian um, but also quite egotistical having to explain why there's a scene in, uh, when they finally get files of mm. Mahamadou's, um experiences in Guantanamo and, and she has to explain to, to Terry Shailene Woodley's character why they do what they do and that you have to make sacrifices and that to stand up for what you believe and what you believe is the truth and right will make you enemies. And that was quite powerful, that moment. But the film itself doesn't dig much deeper than that. 
Um, mm. There are moments that the scenes of torture are very shocking. And I and I love Tahar Rahim. And I do think as well that it's interesting because he was filming this at the same time as he was doing Serpent's Kiss, which is the big BBC show that he played a serial killer in. And, you know, if you watch the two performances side by side, you couldn't get more different. You know, he mm. brings a, a such a warmth and a humanity and a strength of character and spirit in Muhammadu and I know I've seen interviews with Jodie Foster and mm. and Tahir Rahim where they've both said you know he's never been bitter about what he's experienced and when you think about and you see and witness the extremity and the brutality and the injustice that he suffered it's remarkable you know and it's a it's kind of humbling as well to watch and to hear that this man doesn't hold a grudge, even though it's a, it's a massive miscarriage of justice. You know, he was swept up in a tide of anger and a thirst for revenge and answers, and they were looking in the wrong places. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. There's, there's moments in the film that have a stark clarity, which is when you obviously, you know, it's the Bush administration mm. and the US government not taking their share of responsibility in, in uh, why events unfolded. And um, but then, of course, the Obama administration also uh, didn't expunge his his conviction. And so, you know, it was it was interesting that to see the public perception had such an influence doing the wrong thing. Mm. And they, I think the reason, the, I think pub, like you just said, like the public pressure was a, a lot of the reason that why Mahabadu did eventually get released. But um, it was interesting that the Obama administration promised to close Guantanamo Bay and it still remains open now. It just further highlights how much we don't know. Yeah. And what's going on behind the scenes. And and also, you know, like you say, the book was redacted. All of the documents that were provided to his defense were redacted. There was so much there that they knew they were doing illegally. And it was hidden. And there's no, uh, when it's the top that's doing it, where do you go from there? It is incredible it, that he managed to, to get a best-selling redacted book, essentially. Like, there must have been some information in there, but basically nothing. I haven't actually... I mean, some of the scenes in the film of the torture are so oh extreme and that actually I did I, I did struggle mm. with them because yeah. I thought, did that really I mean I'm not questioning Muhammadu's recollection, but it was so outrageous and and psychotic mm. that you wonder how they even were allowed to get away with putting it in the film. Mm. Because obviously more people are going to see it and then the questions will be asked. But it's it's sort of dispiriting in a way that even despite that, despite the book being in existence and the story being made and the film being put out there, that those questions are still left unanswered. It's, yeah. I mean, it is, it, it is quietly powerful, this film, and it's really more about the performances, Benedict Cumberbatch aside. <laughs> Jodie Foster and Tahar Rahim yeah. are both really fantastic in it and so worth watching for that. And it's well made as well. It's well directed by Kevin MacDonald. Yeah, I agree. I think, and it's interesting if you didn't really know the story before because I personally hadn't really heard anything about Muhammadu before so I I felt no brought in I mean, zero, that. yeah I mean zero dark 30 tapped into the and showed elements of the brutality that mm. happened post 9/11 but this is one man's journey for, and it's seen from his POV mm. so it's much more intense and personal um and weirdly what they do capture well in the film is his relationship with his mother no matter how mm -hmm. slight it is you get a real sense of what happened to Muhammadu as a as a young man and then going to Germany and then his relationship with his mother and then the tragic events that unfold there and how she was used as a pawn um in his torture um that that I found quite moving but not all of it was it I don't know if it it dug deep enough 
to really resonate with me. I felt like it it could have explored some of the supporting characters a little bit more and fleshed things out a little bit more. Mm. But um, it's certainly, you know, as you say, as a story that needs to be told and heard and seen, it's it's valid for that alone. I'd like you to consider releasing your letters. To a newspaper? Maybe a book. People need to read your story for themselves. And it'll put pressure on the government to give us a court date. I'm writing for that. Would you like me to step outside? Yeah. Keep going. You don't want to pray? Are you religious? No. Why do you care? I don't. I care about you. What do you want me to sign, Nancy? Who am I suing today? God? No one today. And why are you here? No reason in particular. I just didn't want you to be alone. So we talked about this film a little bit earlier on. It's been nominated for five Oscars and numerous BAFTAs and has been just a darling of award season. It is Promising Young Woman, which is the debut, directorial debut of Emerald Fennell, who is a actress known for playing Camilla Parker Bowles in The Crown and also for being the showrunner who took over from Phoebe Waller-Bridge on Killing Eve. Um, this film stars Carrie Mulligan and it's about a young woman who's traumatised by a tragic event in her past and she seeks out vengeance against those who, who were responsible or who she feels are responsible. I think the best way to watch Promising Young Woman is to not really read too much about it. Like you'll get an idea of the story and, and what it entails, but it I knew going into it that it was about a young woman who was, you know, seeking revenge and and, and it was a film that explored the idea of what consent means, you know, between a man and a woman and how those lines can be blurred and how there's never accountability for it. And so I knew that going in, but the way the film presents itself is so original and so exciting and so powerful and as i said earlier balances this tone of of black comedy with a social message that is so vital and could really be a game changer in terms of starting conversations. You know, so I've seen so many people say this needs to be shown in schools. Young boys need to see this film. And I think they're right because it's the, the way it's presented is it's kind of got like this, I almost want to say like bubblegum sheen mm -hmm. because Cassie played by Carrie Mulligan is, you know, she's got these multicolored nails and she's got the blonde bleach blonde hair and she's got the tan and she's very all American. And she adopts all these different types of characters to go undercover in bars, pretending to be a drunk girl, getting picked up by various guys and then turning the tables. And it's so, it, it's like when you're watching the scenes, you know, well, the first thing you don't, but as you, the film progresses, you know, the character's in control mm. and it hits you like a lightning bolt every time the revelation happens and you see the men realize what they're doing. And so what's so genius about how she presents it in both the script and in the performances that she draws from the actors is that it's not about people just necessarily being evil. She's presenting people with evidence of behavior that you think is acceptable. And that's what's so remarkable about it. And it has the pace of a thriller with these like 
incredible comedic moments. And then you have the introduction of Bo Burnham, who, of course, people may know as the director of um, Eighth Grade. He plays Ryan Cooper, who is an old school friend of Cat or university friend of Cassie's and they sort of spark up a relationship. And then you've got Alison Brie who plays a girl that she went to university with. And there's this, oh, the most extraordinary scene between the two of them in a restaurant that leave you gobsmacked. You're just like, oh my God. Um, And then you've got Jennifer Coolidge, Clancy Brown as her parents, Laverne Cox as a friend. And in a very, in in a one scene that is so powerful, Connie Britton as the um, dean of the university that Cassie's left. And it just, it builds and builds and builds. Oh, I should say, Bo Burnham, what is so brilliant about his character is, you know, he has that face that he looks angelic almost, you know, like that goofy, adorable dork. And um, it suddenly sort of shifts gear, the film, into this almost like surreal rom-com. And it has the most extraordinary use of the Paris Hilton song, Stars Go Blind, in a pharmacy. And you just think, how has she managed to slot this into a film that has all this darkness going on and yet make it work? I mean, it's, it, this is why she's getting all this recognition. Like the blend of tones is seamless. It really is. Uh, anyway, it builds to a incredibly powerful climax. And you, you just, I remember sitting there with my jaw dropped going, what? It hit me like a train, but in the best possible sense, because I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. The message, the the power of it. Carrie Mulligan is so, I wouldn't say a revelation because we all know how great she is, but we've only ever seen a in sort of you know films like films like an education or or great gatsby or um in films like wildlife and you know so we've seen her quite buttoned down and quite repressed and like suffragette but in this a drive and a and a purpose that is just electrifying um i just this film is remarkable you know, i actually wanted to meet you today to talk about something in particular I did wonder. No one's heard from me in like forever. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about why I dropped out. Okay, sure. You remember what happened, right? Oh, such a long time ago now. I know, but you remember. I mean, vaguely. Do you ever think about it? Why would I? Right. Why would you? So if a friend came to you now, came to your house and told you that they thought something bad had happened to them the night before. Cassie. Something bad. It was years ago. What would you say? It, uh, what would you say? Uh, ugh. I feel a little weird. Would you roll your eyes behind her back and dismiss the whole thing as drama? <laughs> why you're mad at me okay i i'm not the only one that didn't believe it if you have a reputation for sleeping around then maybe people aren't going to believe you when you say something's happened i mean it's crying wolf you thought i was crying wolf so our final review is going to be Minari, um, which has been written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung, who has actually also been announced to direct the, I think, live action version of Your Name, which was an animated film, which I absolutely love that came out in 2016. Um, just a little side note. Um, so this, I was very lucky to get to see this. So the good thing, one silver lining about the pandemic is that it's meant all of the, the film festivals are now like completely online. So all the film festivals that you might not have ever been able to go to, for example, I saw this at the Glasgow Film Festival. 
you can actually now see them because they're all online. And there is um, a festival called Borderlines Film Festival, which is starting on Saturday, uh, Friday, the 26th of March. And they're also showing Minari, um, as well as The Father and First Cow and a bunch of other new releases. So if you are kind of interested and you're sort of frustrated that these things aren't coming out to see sort of straight away, or you've got to wait, actually have a little look around because there's a lot of film festivals out there that are now all online. So that's the kind of the one good thing, one silver lining about uh, being stuck inside is we can attend festivals around the country and around the world even without uh, leaving our the comfort of our own homes. So the story of Minari is about a, a young Korean-American family who moved to Arkansas in search of their own kind of version of the American dream. So the dad, played by Stephen Young, is really passionate about buying this farm and sort of buying this, like, not a motorhome exactly, but a static caravan on this farm. It's set in the 1980s as well. So he moves his family there with the promise that this is going to be like a new life. And it's just essentially about a family and their resilience and what really makes a home. And I, I, I was really quite bowled over by the the emotional integrity of this film like it's it's really touching you're really rooting for all the the, for the family like throughout like all of the ups and downs they've got like a grandmother who they're uh, looking after there's a lot of humor in there as well and I really enjoyed it I thought it was it was really beautifully shot it was really like amazingly well acted there's just such a humanity to all of the the characters in it you really feel for them you want them to succeed you want them to do well and I'd never really seen a film about like this era of America from this perspective and I think that's why another reason it's picking up a lot of awards attention because it is quite a unique story and it is a story that needs to be told like a lot of Koreans made their way to America for a better life and I think this shows that history we haven't really seen on screen before and it's really an important story to to see and you know his his dream is to sort of bring Korean fruits and vegetables over and try and sort of sell them and you know he comes up against those that the like the uncertainty of like people wanting to sort of buy into something that they don't they're not sure about you know trying the family trying to fit in with the community and you know losing some of their sense of community and they work in a, a factory at the beginning as a chicken sexer. So they have to like pick up the chicks and assess whether they're male or female and then which ones will go off to be far, like egg farmed and then the others end up dying, which is what happens to, to chickens that don't produce eggs. Um, so it's got six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, Screenplay and Actor for um, Stephen Young. Uh, it also picks up an award for Best Supporting Actress and Best Original Score, and it won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film. It's an interesting one because it's actually an American production film, but it's been nominated. It's in a lot of the like foreign language categories in the in the awards. But yeah, I would thoroughly recommend watching it because it's just a, a really unique, interesting family drama that you re- you find you're really invested in the family by the end of it. And you know, it's got humor in there. It's got drama and tragedy and yeah i really enjoyed it so you can catch it actually at the borderlines film festival and then i think it's out april yeah beginning of april in the uk for like streaming and not sure how they're releasing it actually but i'm guessing mostly online 
Even though Genesis Cinema is currently closed for showing new releases, the kitchen and cafe are open for takeaway and you can also get delivery through Uber Eats. You can get stone-baked pizzas, pies, hot dogs and cinema at-home packages, which are all available via genesiscinema.co.uk. You can also, which is great, hot desk and also hire screens. If you, you know, I don't know, I don't know why you'd want to hire a screen when you can't really be with other people, but so I think it's more for like if you've got any filming that you need to do or ah, location work. Yeah, location work. So you can yes hire the screen for something like that, and then yes, they've got hot desks available if you're unable to work from home, or you know your internet goes down one day and you need somewhere to go. Genesis is your friend. Yeah, and I've I've actually done it myself, not during the pandemic, but I've worked from Genesis Genesis loads of times when I've been in between offices and stuff like that. And it's just, it's a nice vibe. It's really relaxed and chilled and all of that. Um, also, there is some news, which is that the Genesis Beer Garden, I'll be honest, I didn't know they had a beer garden. They Who don't have a beer garden. This is new. They're opening a new beer garden. I think they're around the side, they have a car park. So uh, one imagines that they are converting this car park into some sort of beer garden, which is going to be opening on the 12th of April. Which was The residents are going to love that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm really excited by this because I think the, the thing that I've always loved about going to Genesis is not only is it a great place to watch movies, like the screens are brilliant, like it's the screen one is huge and fantastic. And when you've got a packed screen in there like when we can get back to that it's such an amazing atmosphere when everyone's sort of buzzing you know when we queued up what did we queue up for what was that and it was absolutely rammed queen and slim yeah that was crazy that was the that's the busiest i've ever seen it and we've done star wars premieres there and Mm. all sorts i mean i remember us didn't we go to the uh midnight screening of rogue one and yes had to contend with stormtroopers and a chewbacca yes midnight (laughs) yep and i have also been i think black panther was one of the other biggest uh packed like screens i've been in and it's it's just such a great vibe but not only that is i do love the bar i think the bar is a really nice atmosphere you can, you know, sit down. They've got nice, comfortable sofas, like little booths and stuff. And yeah, it's great. The coffee's good. The staff are friendly. Love it. So I'm excited for them to have a little beer garden for the summer. We can meet there, have a little pint before you go into the screen, have a drink, have a catch up, then head in to watch your film or watch something up, watch something and then have a little drink and discuss afterwards. Um, we should also say that you can support the film by sort of watching a film online through the Genesis. So that way they get the money as if you were buying a ticket. So you can watch the new Nicolas Cage film, Willy's Wonderland, where he takes on a violent set of animatronic amusement park mascots in an action-packed, nail-biting, kick-ass Nick Cage madness. I haven't actually seen it because it looks too scary. I'm not really, it's funny, I'm not a Nick Cage fan necessarily. I have a Nick Cage fan club that I'm sort of in. We watch bad Nicolas Cage movies, but it's more to laugh at them. Hold on. Well, I'm not a Nick Cage fan, but I'm part of a fan club. (laughs) It's not a fan club. We all just watch Nicolas Cage movies. Doesn't that define a fan of Nick Cage? It's mostly to laugh at them because they're so bad most of the time and his performances are terrible. So I wouldn't call myself a fan. I just enjoy watching some of You say that. Are they terrible or are they genius? A lot because the, no, listen, the, you've got to you've got to give Nicolas Cage this. Oh yeah, there's some there, good ones. 
No, it's not that. It's that there is no one else like him. He's a a total original who chooses the most insane parts. Like Willy Wonderland is him fighting a load of demonic puppets. I mean, at his stage in his career, having won an Oscar, et cetera, et cetera. And also from, you know, the lineage that he's from, it's quite something that he just goes to the most bonker bonker films. Um, Mandy, for example, I don't know if you saw that. I just see that. It's like you've taken a load of ketamine and you're in a kind of, I don't know, kaleidoscope of colours. It's very strange. Yeah, that and also the colour out of space, colour out of space. Oh my god, that is a bizarre film, but you know, brilliant. Um, but they're also showing things like a lot of documentaries at the moment that have been out. So MLK slash FBI is on there. A film that I watched um, as well at the Glasgow Film Festival, Polystyrene. I am a cliche, which is a documentary about polystyrene from X-ray specs. It's really good it from the point of view of her daughter so it's a really personal documentary about not just polystyrene the feminist punk icon but also polystyrene the mother and how those two personalities often clashed it's a really great documentary um i would like highly recommend that white riots also on there which i think you watched as well which is the documentary about the rock against racism concert that happened in victoria park in the 80s that's a great one. But yeah, there's loads of stuff on there. So if you go on to genesiscinema.co.uk and just click on their What's On, you can kind of see where all of the online screenings are available and show Genesis some love. Thanks for listening to the Genesis podcast from Genesis Cinema, hosted this week by Nikki Alexandru and me, Matt Williams. Follow us at Genesis Podcast and at Genesis Cinema on Twitter and Instagram. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Music is Do You Want To Be Loved Like This? Instrumental by Kelly Lee. This episode was recorded at home, socially distanced. 